Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Jazz is almost impossible to define. It's slippery and elusive, and while most people know jazz when they hear it, few can do more than recognize it. As such, it's gained a bit of a mystique over its history as a more raw and emotional art form. Today, we're going to talk about the very beginnings of jazz and its ties to the experiences of slaves in the United States. This is a different topic than what we usually tackle on HI 101 and really requires some examples to orient the conversation. Therefore, I've included some short audio clips for review and educational purposes, and I've included all attribution for each track in the show notes for this episode at hi101.ca. They're very short, and if they interest you at all, I strongly recommend looking into them a little bit further because we're talking about some incredible music today and we barely scratched the surface in this episode. Let's begin. Okay, I'm here on HI 101 with Yumiko Hutchenruther. Hello. And we're going to talk about jazz today, mm-hmm. which I'm very excited about. Yeah, me too. Uh, you picked this topic. Today. I did, yeah. And you told me that a big part of it was that a lot of the shows that we do are like politics and wars and stuff like that, which yes. aren't really as interesting to you. <laughs> I mean, they are interesting topics. I won't say that they're not interesting, no, no, no. but I just feel like history encompasses so much more than just sort of the typical thing that you think of when you hear the word history. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is what we learn in school, but mm-hmm. like you're absolutely right. There's so much more to it. And uh, and I'm really interested to do something a little bit more social awesome. uh, with the show because you're right, it has tended to be very, you know, political in nature so far. So uh, this was a lot of fun to research. I actually oh, really enjoyed good. it. <laughs> and uh, I think it's going to be a really good show. Jazz music. What is jazz? It's a really difficult question, right? Yeah. Like, like the starting point for that is... Like if you hear jazz, you know it. But if you had to describe it to someone, it's it's a little bit trickier to It's do. really, really tricky. Like how do you how do you describe jazz music to somebody? It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not an easy thing because if you're talking about, you know, say classical music, you can talk about, you know... Strings um, and... Yeah, yeah. String ensembles mm-hmm. or, or orchestras or things like that. You can talk about what rock music is fairly easily, you know, yeah. like the, the typical, you know, three-piece, four-piece uh, rock outfit is pretty easy to describe and it's pretty easy to describe like on paper, right? Mm-hmm. The biggest problem with jazz and talking about jazz is that you can't really put it down on on paper what exactly jazz is. Yeah. So one thing that's going to be a little bit different about this show is that one of the things I learned the most about prepping for this were 
rules about fair use of jazz songs <laughs> in podcasts because it seems a little bit weird to talk about jazz and not have any reference points for the music. For so sure. I'll be playing little clips, like they'll be very short throughout the show just to kind of... So we have something in common to talk about these these different periods in jazz or these different developments in jazz. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll put them in the show. I mean, if you're, if you're listening and, and you have the opportunity... I, I would say go and find these songs and listen to them in their entirety if this is anything, you know, even even close to interesting for you. Because because without hearing it, I mean, you know, all of a sudden we're, we're sort of t- describing something that w- without that reference point, it's it's so theoretical that, you know, what, yeah. what, what's even the point, right? So um, I'll, I'll put what I can in the show, but I, I don't want to turn this into a music show. It is still a, a history show. It's just that we're talking about a social phenomenon and a very American one, too. Mm-hmm. So jazz music in general, I, I, some of the common points I found when people are talking about it are, uh, you know, a focus on improvisation, syncopation, which basically means um, uneven timing on the notes. Again, it, it's we're already into like music theory stuff. It's kind of hard <laughs> to pin down. Mm-hmm. There's like a dictionary definition of it, but, you know. Uh, non-traditional scales, usually like pentatonic or the use of, of seventh chords a lot. Seventh chords are, you know what, I'll probably just like stick to regular chords in here. I'll put a C <laughs> and then a C7. It's one of those things, again, if you if you hear it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But but describing it is, is unless you're fairly well versed in music theory, is kind mm-hmm. of pointless. Often with music, the best way to... Um, describe or explain something is through using examples. So. Yeah, for sure. Then there's also swing notes, which is kind of this idea of um, it's it's not quite the same as syncopation, but it's similar. Where it's it's almost impossible to describe it in a meaningful way. It's it's more about feel. There's a lot of talk about polymeter, which is you know two parts of the song being written basically in different uh, time signatures. Mm-hmm. I found a, a definition, which I think was the best thing that I, I could possibly do for explaining why it's so difficult to talk about jazz in really clear, clear-cut clear terms, where someone from, from the Harvard Dictionary of Music, it says, swing superimposes six subdivisions of the beat over a basic pulse structure or four subdivisions. This aspect of swing is far more prevalent in African-American music than in Afro-Caribbean music. And one aspect of swing, which is heard in more rhythmically compact, complex diaspora musics, places strokes in between the triple and double pulse grids. That's not jazz. That's the least jazzy thing I've ever heard. Yeah. So there. That's also a very technical definition. It's extremely technical, but yeah. like, the more that you try and like narrow down and like and and put jazz constructs into technical terms, mm-hmm. the more you just kind of lose track of what is actually going on here. So Thelonious Monk said something very similar to yours, which is, you're just supposed to know it when you hear it. And Louis Armstrong said. If you have to ask what jazz is, you'll never know. <laughs> and I like that. Those are like the best ones that I could find, really, because it's it's such an intangible thing. Yeah. One of the problems with kind of analyzing where things come from, especially on a social level, is that, you know, everything starts somewhere. But when you're talking about something along the lines of, say, a war or something like that, you can kind of go like, oh, it was this date that they declared war and okay, here's the start of the war. There's like a very set, clear starting point. And they say, hey, we're declaring war because of X. And then you can go like, well, here are the factors. Yeah. Uh, Jazz isn't that easy to to nail down, (laughs) really. Mostly because you can't really talk about jazz without talking about uh, the African-American experience. 
And we're going to try and stay away from getting too heavy into that stuff today because that's not what we want to talk about today. That's not what the show is. But, I mean, music at this point in time in the European tradition, we're talking very formalized stuff. Like, you know, the you know, opera is really big at this point. Mm-hmm. Popular music would be like, you know, the, the sort of more comical operas, like the, the whole Gilbert and Sullivan style, like yes, the, the yeah. more common people operas, right? Which mm-hmm. are already being looked at as, you know, kind of vulgar in a way. You know, there, there are purists who are going like, this isn't real opera. This is the degradation of society as we know it. <laughs> and you're looking at it and it's like, this is Pirates of Penzance. Like, calm down, people. <laughs> we'll be okay. Yeah. But a lot of what you're hearing is, you know, we're talking about sort of the second half of the 19th century here. You know, you're talking about people like Tchaikovsky uh, that, that's uh, working at this point in time. Wagner, you're talking mm-hmm. about, uh, you know. Very famous classical composers. Extremely famous in, in the in the romantic tradition mainly. And it's it's these big sweeping epics. And there's a lot of, you know, either that style or the, it's it's often mixed with opera. And it's it's very stuffy when you listen to an hour. It seems kind of stuffy in a, in a way because, well, because of the effect that jazz has had on on Western music since then. Mm-hmm. Because what's happening at this point, at the same time, is that, you know, you've had slaves who've been brought over to America from Africa, and then afterwards, you know, they're they're sort of cut off from the societies that they came from, and, and, and in a very restricted social setting under slavery in the southern United States. And what you get is this weird amalgamation of things. Number one, you have uh, a restriction on drumming, which was part of the... Uh, the laws that governed um, slaves in the, in the United States. A restriction on drumming. Yes, because, well, to, to be honest with you, the drum the drumming traditions in Africa at this point in time mm-hmm. are really, uh, well, they're, they're working with something called polymeter, which is, is these, these two time signatures at the same time. And a lot of the rhythm uh, patterns that are, are really common are, like, if you listen to them now, sound really, like, stereotypically African. Right. Like, it's the kind of thing that would be put over... Uh, a scene in a jungle in a movie from the 1950s. Right. Okay. Like, so, and and to be honest, like, they, they, they found it a little unsettling. Mm-hmm. So they put a restriction on drumming. What that does is you move from an unusual time signature to no time signature whatsoever, or they're using, uh, or they would use their, their bodies to keep time. So there's a lot of uh, stomping, clapping, things like that to keep time, which which just completely loosened up any, any sense of, of um, of keeping a, a strict rhythm. Right. Whereas at this point in, in, you know, Western music, for the most part, you're talking about very strict rhythms. It's usually, you know, you're very strict 4-4, four, four, you know, the, the, the one beat is the strongest one. And, you know, all the stuff that you're kind of taught in piano as a kid or whatever. That's not what they were singing when they were done work for the day. That's not at all what they were singing. Mm-hmm. And this is what would end up being called crossbeat in, in jazz. It's this idea of, of playing beats where they're not really supposed to be. But you play it in a time that it kind of just sort of works itself out after a cycle. And it doesn't sound like it's supposed to be right. It'll be right in the end. It'll be okay. <laughs> they got this. The other thing that came out of this was traditional call and answer field songs, which are really a, a, a way to deal with working in, in manual labor where like coordination, keeping rhythm, keeping time is actually a big asset. When you're working together in a field, keeping up can be not only more efficient, but can actually kind of keep you out of trouble because if you don't realize that you're getting tired and not working at the same pace as everyone else it can single you out for punishment so there would be a lot of songs that would it would involve one strong singer that was singing a sort of a lead part and everyone else would sing an answer and and it's it's yeah you're you're very familiar with stuff like this actually i'm gonna play 
our first song now. Ironically, this is going to be the latest uh, recorded song that we're going to listen to in terms of like when it was actually put to record. It's from, yeah, this is the thing about fair use. I got to talk about who did it and when and all that. This is from a lady named Bessie Jones, and she was amazing. She was the singer who did a lot of research into these field calls, these uh, as well as some of the the early spirituals and things like that, did a lot of uh, research on how they were originally sung, talked to a lot of people who remembered it from when they were young enough to actually mm. have experienced it. And, and you know, her whole life was putting this stuff to to a record. So this is, uh, this is a, a traditional song. We have no idea who wrote it, but it's called This May Be The Last Time. Um, yeah, I'll pop it on right now. Maybe the last time we sang together Okay, so you can kind of hear that Bessie is singing like a lead part that, that changes through the song, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone else answers with, you know, this may be the last time, I don't know, right? And if you were hearing this song for the very first time ever, if you'd never heard it before, it would take you all of like a verse and a half to be able to sing everything that all of those response people are singing, right? Mm-hmm. Really easy to learn songs were important. You'll also notice that there's a lot of harmony going on there. Yeah, they were trying, it's, it's not It's not just about functionality, they were trying to enjoy themselves as much as possible under the conditions. Of course. And, you know, these these traditions of um, of choral singing, which they were getting a little bit through uh, through having to go to church on Sundays, which would end up pointing kind of to that sort of Baptist choir tradition in the South, right? Like, it's, it's kind of going in that direction as well. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things are coming together to like really soulful music, right? Like it's, it's got yeah. a lot more heart than maybe what you're thinking of, you know, some of the, some of the other like romantic composers. I mean, that stuff yeah. is beautiful, but not, not it's, in the same way. Yeah. It's a very different style. Yeah. It's, it's certainly evoking something different. And mm-hmm. um, so you'll also notice that they're keeping beat by clapping and stomping, things like that. There's not, you know, it's, it's whatever is on hand. It's not about specific uh, instruments. You'll also notice that people are kind of, they're improvising their own parts. So they're all singing along, but they're improvising the specific harmony that they're doing. It's never exactly the same. As well as, you know, a, a lot of times the person in Bessie's role, in the caller role, will improvise their own part because it doesn't really matter what they part, what they do. The, right. the answer is going to be the same. Mm-hmm. This is all going to kind of lead towards what would be known as, as spirituals. Oh man, it sucks looking up spirituals because... If you just look up spiritual music, you get like a bunch a of like a huge variety of different things. Well, it's mainly like the the Tibetan singing bowls and right. like like sitar music and stuff yeah. like that. And I had a really hard time finding what I was looking for until I kind of just bit the bullet and punched in Negro spiritual, which is like ah, oh, I man. didn't like doing that. But no, it, I mean you've you've got to you've got to specify, right? So it, it's it's fairly similar to what we're hearing there. It's it's usually just uh, a little more religious in nature but it's always you know it's always songs that are generally slave spirituality was uh latching on to the aspects of christianity about being freed from slavery which makes a lot of sense yeah and so a lot of those songs are are about being freed and then you have something called minstrel shows which are maybe the most offensive thing that ever happened in american music which is saying a lot (laughs) Basically, what you had after, you know, after the Thirteenth Amendment in 1865, the slaves were freed. There was a big social crisis in the in the Southern states, namely, 
you know, what, what do we do with all these people who were enslaved the year before, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's not an easy thing to transition out no, of. No, no. And, you know, without getting into it too much, what they ended up passing was uh, a bunch of laws known now collectively as the Jim Crow laws, which were essentially designed to uh, make African-American second-class citizens without technically violating their constitutional rights. And I mean, this is the kind of stuff that would stick around in one form or another until the 60s and, and you know, arguably still could be said to have uh, a lasting impact on, on American culture. But mm-hmm. we'll, we'll leave that to one side. One, one thing that came up culturally out of this was, was these, were, were these minstrel shows where it's exactly what it sounds like. It's people traveling around, uh, you know, sort of musical variety shows that were, you know, where we get a lot of our really racist stereotypes. There's a lot of like performance in blackface and stuff like that all comes out of this period. Mm-hmm. The music from this tended to be what they called authentic African-American music. How authentic it was is hard to say. Number one, we have no idea whether or not the minstrel performers themselves thought that it was authentic because they could just be saying that to draw in uh, an audience. People love these things. They were incredibly amused by them, um, even though they're pretty much revolting, even just to read about at this point in time. Um, So they may have just been saying that to bring people in, or they may have legitimately thought that they were traditional songs that were kind of sold to them as such, but weren't initially. So there's a lot of question even to this day of, of, you know, about certain songs, whether or not they were authentic, whether or not they were uh, created to ape the style, things like that. But what you get out of it is this attempt to take call and answer songs like that and put them to so-called European instruments. So they're introducing mainly banjo and fiddle into this Mm -hmm. and playing these songs and trying to replicate these things uh, as one person with uh, either a fiddle as the call or with a banjo as the answer to try and replicate that that mix of voices mm. that are applying to it. So uh, as far as as far as musical development went, it was it was a bit of a step forward, but uh, it's it's the kind of thing that's kind of best left in in the past, socially speaking. It was right. it was pretty awful. We're going to take a bit of a a jump forward to a type of music called ragtime, which I'm sure you're mm-hmm. very very yeah. much familiar with which was popular more or less 1895 to 1910. When ragtime started, the kind of music that was like really popular in the States, other than, you know, sort of small regional music, like as, as a nation, they really liked like marching band style stuff. Right. Like, like you know, uh, Sousa marching tunes, things like that. Like the, any, anything that you think of as like, any any marching band tune that you think of like in a parade or something like that probably has its roots right around here what certain performers started doing with it and uh, i should add a kind of a footnote at this point any of the performers that i'm going to talk about we're going to assume are Mm african-american because as much as you it's 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 impossible to talk about jazz without talking about the black experience in the united states it's 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 very much um tied to that ethnic experience so unless i mention it just assume that everyone we're talking about today is black there's there's like one white performer that we're going to discuss um but this is very much um an art form that's tied to that group so scott joplin who is is easily the most famous ragtime musician to the point that i'm not going to bother talking about anyone else really (laughs) was born in uh 1867 or 1868 in northwest texas 
this is a time where if you're if you're born in 1807 or 1868 in Northwest Texas and you're black, people don't really pay attention to exactly when you're born. And he had a pretty rough life to show for it. Um, spent a lot of time doing manual labor, but he was also an incredibly gifted musician. He was he was a piano player, obviously. And he decided at some point that, you know, enough is enough. I'm going to try and take this on the road. Thing is, if it's the 1880s and you are a black piano player in Texas, you're going to have a rough time. Yeah. People don't want to hire you as a musician. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he spent a little bit of time uh, traveling around, basically taking what work he could, but usually it ended up being in pretty seedy places, which is to say things like saloons, often brothels, things like that, where it's just like they'll take anybody that'll play the piano. Yeah. It's it's not exactly a... Uh, it's not like a musician's dream. <laughs> not really, no, not necessarily. Then something kind of pivotal happened in, in the history of the United States as a whole, which is the, the 1893 Chicago World Fair. And it's interesting how many things kind of tie to the World Fair. It was, it was extremely influential. I mean, when you talk about, for example, Nikola Tesla got his big break at the, at the World Fair by putting oh. on his demonstrations there. Like there's, there's, it, it, it connects so many things <laughs> together. But he decided that he's going to make a go of it. He's going to go up to Chicago and he's going to try and make it as a musician during this fair. Uh, no one will hire him except for some bars and things like that, right? But he starts mm-hmm. playing, and there's so many people in Chicago at this point in time. Millions of people come to Chicago for the World Fair that enough people heard him that he started kind of getting a little bit of a following. People started paying attention to what he was playing. And basically what he was what 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 he really was playing was marching band style music, but on a piano with some polka influence. Like there's a lot of polka to it when you listen to Ragtime, mm-hmm. but with a lot of his own flavor to it. So, I mean, th- he's, he's got two big songs, one being The Entertainer, but probably bigger is The Maple Leaf Rag from 1899. So let's throw that one on so we know what we're talking about with Ragtime. So kind of the the most defining feature of, of ragtime is in, in the left hand, the lower parts, have like a really steady like one, two, three, four, one, mm-hmm. two, three. And then the right hand is flying all over the place. Yeah. The timing is really weird. It's it's holding notes for longer than it should or jumping to notes. It sooner sounds than very it challenging. I'm not a pianist, but it's a lot of fun to play. Mm-hmm. I, I did a lot of piano and and it's it's a lot of fun. It can be it can be tricky. The biggest problem with playing it, to be honest, is divorcing your two hands because they're not doing the same thing at all yeah i have a cello background and for me like seeing people play piano is just like incredible to me yeah yeah yeah. no i I mean a lot of times when you're playing for example uh like uh, european stuff at this point in time or or shortly before say something like uh tchaikovsky your hands are very much working in concert they're doing two different things but they're supporting Mm -hmm. the same melody overall right yeah um they're they're kind of working towards a a similar goal Mm -hmm. And if you go earlier, there's stuff that kind of sounds almost like ragtime if you go far enough back, like if you're looking at like really early Baroque type stuff, like the the, the harpsichord type. But the, the biggest thing that, dif- uh, that differentiates them is that when you look at the Baroque stuff, 
it's all like very like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And it's, it's very strong on the ones and kind of a medium stress on the threes and the two and four are weak. And that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. That's how you play music. (laughs) And all of a sudden his right hand is just completely out of control. So you have to, when you're playing it, you have to kind of, your left hand is just holding it down. It's just, it's just there to keep time. Yeah. And all of a sudden your right hand is just, if you played it without the left hand, it would sound like utter nonsense. You wouldn't know why it was doing what it was doing when it was doing it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of fun to play, really. It's like is. that hand is like the backbone of the piece. Yeah, absolutely. But the other thing that you'll you'll notice is that a lot, a lot of the notes sound almost like he's hitting them accidentally, but they're not accidental at all. They're very, very deliberate. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the unusual scales or modes that they're that they tended to use in jazz. You know, there's a lot of seventh notes going on there which I, I played it briefly earlier, but it's, it's stuff that puts a bit of a, a, an emotional strain almost on the chord. Mm-hmm. It's right, mm-hmm. but it sounds like it just needs to do something else to resolve itself. Ragtime blew up and, and, and Joplin blew up. He, he was incredibly famous in the United States, you know, around the turn of the century up until, uh, up until 1910. He, he died in, in 1917. He was quite sick for a few years before he died, but um, mm. it just syphilis it was it was not it's a it's a it's an ugly way to go it's a yeah yeah it's an unpleasant disease oh man not that there is a pleasant disease yeah no that's that's very true but it kind of rots out your brain a little bit just a little bit and there are some recordings of joplin himself playing stuff um on piano roll you know the like the player pianos that you Mm -hmm. you kind of pedal well you know somebody plays those to record them right so he actually recorded some uh, performances on player piano but they're so late in his life that he's basically losing his ability to play the piano and it's kind of oh that's sad it's a little disappointing to listen to to be perfectly honest because they're sloppy oh and it's kind of like you know he was better than this at one point and you know it and it I, must have been frustrating for him too as a player like if that's something that he was aware of I which can't i'm imagine. sure he was yeah i can't imagine how difficult that would be to see yourself kind of deteriorate and that's yeah. that, that's his whole Absolutely. life right that's what pulled him out of complete poverty in Texas was his musical abilities. And to see that going is, is very tragic. That's heartbreaking. A lot of people have said that basically ragtime died with Scott Joplin. It's not that no one else was doing it. In fact, everyone else was doing it. It was all the rage. But no one could do it as well. Mm-hmm. And this is a long overview that we have to get through. So we're not going to talk about any of those other guys. We'll uh, take a quick stop off with blues because that's not really where we're going to hang around and blues is its own thing. But we can't really not talk about blues because at this point, jazz is, or, or what would become jazz, is kind of just lying under the surface, musically speaking. A lot of the, the popular music that we're talking about, like as I said, was like marching band stuff or was the kind of stuff that you would hear in like a high school band. Like the, you know, with mostly brass and, and, and things like that. But if you go down to Mississippi, you're hearing really innovative things happening with uh, with guitar picking methods or with banjo playing. That people are inventing new ways of playing it. If, if you go to New Orleans, you're hearing different stuff. If you go to Texas, you're hearing more Mexican flavored things. If you go to New York, you're hearing a little bit more piano influenced stuff. If you go to Chicago, more guitar influenced stuff. Uh, everywhere has this little, you know, their own little pockets of, of style that are going on on a local level that no one's really aware of outside of that area. Mm-hmm. And it's what would become jazz is kind of 
all percolating in all these little different places and it just hasn't been really put together yet. So blues, specifically Delta blues, uh, the, the Mississippi Delta, really what they were doing was field calls, which are a specific type of call and answer. It's basically just the call part. It's, it's taking the answer out of a call and answer. Field calls are, if you listen to it, it sounds a lot like what you would think of as blues vocals just on its own though. So it's just someone singing it solo. And it's really haunting to hear actually without the the normal sort of 12 bar mm-hmm. um, bass behind it, right? Like it's, it's, it's really, it's really strange. But what you would, what, what they would do in, uh, in Delta blues was they would play the guitar by, by smacking it, by, by hitting the strings rather than strumming them. Mm-hmm. And they would use the chords, which were all, you know, really strange chords. They weren't the kind of chords they would teach you at a conservatory. They would use those strings and slap them to replicate, again, the, the answer part of the call and answer to, to back up their singing. Then this guy named W.C. Handy comes along. Handy was born in 1873. Uh, he was a well-educated pastor's son, grew up uh, in, in Alabama. But, you know, despite being in Alabama, was well-educated, and, and he, which, which was rare for an African-American at that point in time mm-hmm. um, in Alabama. He spent a lot of time, he got really interested in music. His, his dad hated it. Really? Um, he, well, he was, a, he was a Baptist pastor and, uh, and, and saw it as, uh, you know, at best a distraction and, you know, at, at worst. So, like, uh, church services then, like, did not have very much music? Well, when Handy basically snuck out and bought a, a guitar with his own, uh, his own money uh, and got punished pretty badly for it. So his dad let him start church organ lessons at that point in time. Interesting. But only after he couldn't keep him away from music at all. So, I mean, Handy was a very driven guy. He really, really was. And he really loved music. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Uh, Baptist traditions at this point in time, especially in the South, were kind of spotty in terms of what they saw as uh, sinful living, I guess you could say. And, and certainly music that wasn't directly for the purposes of worship um, could very easily fall into that category. I mean, we're, we're, only, we're only a few years away from people getting prohibition put into place, mm-hmm. which is largely driven by sort of the, the Southern religious uh, front, as well as, uh, you know, a few other groups, but we'll get there. But there's a big focus on uh, clean living. There's this mm-hmm. idea that, that if, you, if, you, if you live clean, then, then that uh, translates into your spiritual well-being as well. But anyways, Handy managed to kind of work past all of that stuff. And he spent uh, six years living in Mississippi, 1902 to 1908, studying the blues and going around and basically finding these guys who played the blues, what, what, what would become blues music, and figuring out what exactly they were doing. Because a lot of the times you would hear these guys playing and it would kind of be like, well, what, how are you even making those noises? Like it, it, <laughs> the, the playing techniques that they were developing were so, number one, improvisational because that's the musical uh, heritage at this point. And... Number two, um, untrained, because these guys weren't going to lessons. They weren't taking lessons. Mm-hmm. They were finding a guitar and teaching themselves how to play. That's amazing. It, it really, really is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, 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 transi- uh, the, the uh, tradition of improvisation is, is absolutely incredible in all of this. But we're going to see a bit of a theme of you know, what we started off with, people trying to take the sort of intangible and, and emotional and, and really um, affecting thing and take it apart and see how, like, see what makes it tick and try mm-hmm. and put it back together. And it's not quite right. No. 
and and this is going to keep coming or this is going to keep happening back and forth and that's that's kind of what handy did by attempting to codify the blues he started writing music that he claimed was authentic blues music which doesn't really sound that much like blues uh i'm going to put on one of his tracks now it's called memphis blues from 1914 and it's probably not quite what you're expecting sounds way too happy to be blues (laughs) it it doesn't sound like blues at all there's a couple of things that are going on there and this is something that we're going to find a lot when we're going through this stuff it's it's where this stuff is kind of starting out i'm looking for sort of more transitional songs over songs that are maybe representative or like or like seminal necessarily this is one of the first recorded blues songs uh, the thing that makes it blues is mainly something that's called the twelve-bar pattern. It's it's pretty common. Usually, you know what? I'll I'll stick a quick twelve-bar, like the 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 classic stripped-down twelve-bar in here. So like that, that's the, that's the blues strumming pattern that like you learn when you're, when you don't know any guitar at all. And you're mm-hmm. like, now I know the blues. I, I know <laughs> all of it. It's, it's in there. If you listen to the music, it's, it's in there. That chord progression is in there. It's definitely not using a blues scale, which is kind of a modified pentatonic scale. I, I mentioned pentatonic before and didn't say anything about it. Pentatonic is using only five notes out of a scale instead of eight. And it tends to sound very... Usually people will associate pentaton- uh, music on a pentatonic scale with either uh, Native American or Middle Eastern or possibly African music, which makes a lot of sense as to why blues would be pulling off of a pentatonic scale with that sort of very distant but still definitely present African uh, tradition to their music. That's what the blues sounded like. And obviously it changed a lot over time. But you'll notice that it's still got that sort of Sousa marching band thing going on that was popular at that point in time. I I, I mainly put that in there to show how these sort of regional flavors start affecting the popular music, right? Like, so you've got, you've got your marching band music, but you add a little bit of polka and a little bit of, of regional flavor and you get ragtime. Mm -hmm. You take that marching band sound, you add uh, a 12 bar pattern and you add some, delta sensibilities and you get the blues and i mean this will turn into the blues it gets there eventually (laughs) you know what i mean so we'll leave things in the delta for right now Uh, i think we're going to take a quick break and uh, after we come back we're going to talk a little bit more about our third region that i wanted to hit namely new orleans and uh, we'll pick it up there Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Yumiko Hutchenruther. Hello. And we were just talking about a bunch of music that really doesn't sound jazzy at all. Like, not at all. Not not really. <laughs> so we're going to go to New Orleans. 
New Orleans is a really interesting city. I wouldn't mind doing a little more on New Orleans at some point. Louisiana, just like Louisiana as a whole, is, is really interesting. But New Orleans is, is this, uh, this port that, you know, at one time was French, a, a very long time ago. And then at one point in uh, Canada's history, actually, the, uh, the British packed up a whole bunch of French colonists after they took some French territory. They packed up these people they called the Acadians and took them all down, sailed them from like Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, sailed them down to New Orleans and dumped them off there. It's also a, a port city. So there was a lot of trade with the, the Spanish Caribbean. So you get a lot of trade not only from Jamaica, but also from Cuba mm-hmm. um, and, and from some of the, the smaller nations in that area, as well as South America. So it's a, it's a major crossroads. And then it's, it's part of this big French territory that gets sold off to the United States as part of the Louisiana Purchase. So it's got a really interesting sort of cultural uh, backstory to it, mm-hmm. including a, a lot of different non-white traditions, for lack of a better term, because we have people not only from Africa, but also indigenous people from South America, from the Indies, like from, from the Caribbean, all kind of coming together and, and creating some really interesting stuff, uh, the most famous of which would be like the, the voodoo tradition, which is kind of an amalgamation of strangely a lot of Catholicism, yes, as well as um, some, some really interesting African and, and Haitian, more pagan traditions. And yeah, some interesting stuff goes on, man. There's, there's some really cool stories that come out of, uh, out of New Orleans, but it's, it's really unique. Like there's a lot of stuff that only happens in New Orleans, culturally speaking. One of them, uh, musically anyways, is that there's a major, like even more than the rest of the country, there's a big marching band tradition in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people hypothesize is a result of it being uh, an occupied colony for so so much of its history. Mm -hmm. There's so many times that, you know, it's a a little French colony and then it's, it's, uh, you know, a French colony that, that is on lockdown because of the new Acadian settlers, then you know, is on lockdown because it was just sold to the United States and then is on lockdown because of, you know, all these Haitian traders. And, and it's, it's constantly, somebody's keeping There's an eye on something. everyone. There's always something, yeah. But what, else, what, what often ha- uh, seems to happen in that sort of situation is there's usually a strong push against that sort of occupation and there's a really strong uh, cultural identity that tends to come out of it because people are generally kind of defiant under those conditions yeah right so they they tend to really assert themselves uh culturally Mm -hmm. speaking so there's this really interesting tradition that comes up in new orleans in the in the late 19th early 20th century known as the jazz funeral now i i it wasn't originally called the jazz funeral they didn't really call it anything originally except a, a funeral it was it was sometimes called a walking funeral do you know the jazz funeral at all? Have you ever I'm, heard of this? I'm familiar with the term, but I can't say that I know for sure what it is. Generally, to like, it's it's one of those things that it's almost worth looking up videos of it because it's 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 if you haven't seen it, it's really hard to describe. But basically, what happens is when when someone dies, there's the the church service for the funeral, and then there's a uh, there's a procession to the cemetery, and on the way to the cemetery, there'll be uh, a marching band that uh, follows the casket. So the casket will be on a, on a wagon pulled mm-hmm. by a horse and it'll be followed by the minister and, and the family and all the loved ones and a marching band. And this band will play like really slow, solemn songs 
they'll walk very slowly to the cor- uh, to the uh, graveyard, and usually people will be uh, grieving for this portion. Then they'll perform the burial. They'll say uh, a few words, and then they walk away from the graveyard, and the band lights up into this like really happy, bright, really fun jazz. There's no other word for it, right? Mm-hmm. But it's all played on like marching band instruments, which sounds really, really weird. But when you think about New Orleans style jazz, it's all horns, right? One of the biggest names to come out of New, uh, specifically New Orleans jazz was uh, Louis Armstrong. So mm-hmm. I'm going to throw on another, another standard, but I'll do his version just so we get some Louis Armstrong on the show because yeah, what am I even doing if I'm not, I'm not playing <laughs> some of him? But this is a recording of him doing uh, When the Saints Go Marching In, which is, again, like a, a traditional hymn. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's not... We'll, we'll get back to this. First, let's listen to the, <laughs> let's listen to the song. Okay, so that was a later recording, and obviously there's a drummer in there, which wouldn't be... Mm -hmm playing anything like that as part of a jazz funeral. There is also some piano in there that you wouldn't have. But if you listen to the rest of the instruments, you know, you've got Louis Armstrong on the trumpet, obviously. He's possibly the greatest trumpet trumpet player that's ever lived. Amazing. He's he's, he's incredible. And the, the more I the more I read about him and the more I hear about what he was capable of, the the more amazed I am. He was apparently capable of blowing uh, 200 high Cs in a row. Wow. Which is that's incredible. Yeah, it's 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 hard to kind of conceive of that if you don't yeah. know any, any trumpet players, but it's really impossible. Yeah, it was it was to a point like that. That was a famous thing about him because people would show up and challenge him to basically like a, a call and answer uh, contest <laughs> on the trumpet to try and prove that they were better than Louis Armstrong. That sounds like cons- it would be really fun to watch. It would be so much fun, but he would consistently beat them. Of like, course, he would <laughs> easily. <laughs> And I mean, there were, there were some later players that maybe gave him a little bit of a run for his money. Maybe Miles mm-hmm. Davis, possibly. Yeah. yeah. But in terms of talking about specifically New Orleans jazz, there was never anyone even close, especially if we're talking about specifically trumpet. So what you hear, anyways, we, we I, I got a little off track because he's so, he, he can absolutely do that to me every time. You know, he's playing his trumpet, a marching band instrument. You've got someone on the trombone who's kind of, he's he's carrying the the bass part, Mm -hmm. but he's kind of, again, kind of noodling in in a certain range. And there's a guy on clarinet just going to town. Yeah. Like, he's really good. All of these are stuff that, all of these are instruments that you would find, like, in a marching band. It's the kind of thing that you could carry along with you in a marching procession and aren't necessarily, like, fife and drum style military marching band things but by by the late 19th century where military where a military marching band was less about you know carrying orders over the over the sound of musket fire or whatever and more of a ceremonial thing these were absolutely the kind of things that military uh, bands would have around so you've got this you've got a few things going on you've got that style of of of, uh, instrument kicking around very ready at at hand which means that just about everybody learned to play something because everybody had instruments and nobody learned formally because everybody was, you know, 
kind of poor and didn't really need to because they learned from the people around them. Then you've got the New Orleans style funeral, which I, I don't think I mentioned, but it, it, it actually kind of came out of the voodoo tradition where it was customary to uh, celebrate the life of, of someone who had passed partially to, you know, to, to celebrate that person and partly to please the spirits of the person who had just died to show mm-hmm. them that that you had appreciated their life so that they wouldn't come back and haunt you because that was the kind of thing <laughs> that people who were deep into voodoo actually worried about quite a bit. Yeah. So not only were they, you know, kind of interested in having some fun, it was actually really, really important that they had some fun because it could go really bad if they didn't actually enjoy themselves. So they're trying to make it as enjoyable as it's possible. It's like a fun way to show their respect for the person who had passed. Yeah. and and Or to, or to celebrate their yes. life, I guess. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I mean... Yeah, again, I, I would love to talk about New Orleans more at some point, but the, the voodoo traditions, it's kind of like, well, it's hard to say how much of it was cultural, how much of it was people, I, I shouldn't say it like that because it makes it sound like maybe nobody believed in it. Lots of people believe very deeply in voodoo. It's it's, a, it's an incredibly important part of um, both Haitian and, uh, mm-hmm. and New Orleans life. But, you know, by the time Louis Armstrong came around, it really wasn't nearly as, as uh, prevalent. But the traditions that had kind of spawned remained. Mm-hmm. Finally, the other thing that I wanted to mention was, you know, when the Saints go marching in is like a really traditional song. Everyone knows that song, right? It's it's it, it, it's one of those things that's sort of mm-hmm. a, a cultural phenomenon. They call it a standard in jazz, right? So the people who are playing this have played this song a thousand times before. Mm-hmm. And if they want to go a little bit off book, they're <laughs> going to be able to find their way back. Oh, yeah. And that's really the heart of jazz, right? Is having a song that everyone in the band knows to such an extent that they can always find their way back to where they're supposed to be if they go a little bit off book. And becoming a better player in jazz is about figuring out how to go farther and farther off and still sound good and still work with your your uh, your other musicians and, and still, you know, end up where you need to be eventually. The other thing that you can notice about that particular song is that if you think about that song, it's still a call and answer song. You know, the, 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 the leader will sing, you know, when the saints and everyone responds when the saints. And, and there's really only one line in there that gets, uh, gets altered each verse and it's altered by the leader and mm-hmm. everyone just calls it back. That's true. It does retain that same sort of structure that we had talked about earlier. Absolutely. So if we were going to say, you know, this like one place was the start of jazz... I kind of feel like this would be the best place to point to. It's still not perfect. It's a long way from perfect because there's a lot of other stuff that's going to come up. But, you know, the, the, the stuff that's coming out of New Orleans in, you know, say 1905 or so is sounding a lot like a, a much sloppier version of what we just listened to. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, the, that's the style. That's the sort of mindset behind it. That's what people are striving for and that's what people are playing. So that's the first thing. I think really uh, sounds a lot like jazz from what we've talked about so far. In 1905, a guy named Jelly Roll Morton, which honestly I think is kind of more of a blues name personally, but (laughs) Jelly Roll Morton. Jelly Roll Morton. I like it. He brought out a, a, he, he put out a song in 1905 called New Orleans Blues. And the biggest thing that he brought, or that he brought to the table on this one, was using swing beats. Because there's a difference between people just kind of improvising throughout the song and, and kind of, you know, bending those sevenths and, and, and hitting odd notes and mm-hmm. hitting odd runs and things like that. There's a difference between that and actually putting a swing beat behind something. And 
I, we talked briefly about swing in the technical terms before. It's it's again really hard to to describe, but like the the the, the classic swing beat, like that. Like when you hear it, you know exactly what it is. But like to put that down in musical notation is actually really hard. It's kind of interesting. Our musical notation is not built for jazz, not even close. It does a really poor job of it. So, I kind of like that aspect of jazz as well. It's not really something you can contain. Yeah, it's 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 uh, indefinable. It's unquantifiable. Mm-hmm. It's it's and and that's a thing that that both jazz musicians and and fans of jazz say about it constantly is that it's not about um, writing it down. It's not about you know yeah. counting it out. It's about what feels right. It it's feels about, very authentic. Yes. Yeah. I I completely agree. So. Out of all of this stuff, you know, we're, we're I've been jumping around a little bit in time, but up until now, we've really been talking about, you know, pockets of, of jazz. Something else is going to happen around this time, which is what's called the Great Migration, which basically means that between about 1910 and 1930, around 1.6 million African-Americans move out of the Deep South into mainly Chicago and New York. So they're moving out of the rural south where there's not only no uh, opportunities for them, there's actually an an incredibly hostile society towards them where they have basically no opportunities to large cities with plenty of economic opportunities and, at least relatively speaking, a more welcoming uh, society. And with them comes everything social about their lives because that's the thing about history is, is, you know, we can talk about something like the Great Migration and put numbers on start dates and end dates and numbers on the number of people but you're talking about families that are moving out of a place where they and their ancestors have been for a couple hundred years and, and that's that's their lives mm-hmm. and and it's it's and and of course they're going to bring their music with them why wouldn't yeah. they yeah and there's a couple of of things that come out of this this migration um mainly there's a few instruments that they kind of ditch a little bit hmm. um the banjo and fiddle aren't quite as common up north, the banjo is a very, the banjo is an interesting instrument. It's um yeah, when you hear banjo, you tend to associate it with the South. Yeah, I think. a little bit. Banjo playing, and and it's changed so much over the years. I mean, it's made a huge comeback in the last oh, five yeah. years, which is weird. For I think sure. that's on the downswing, but I think we got a little saturated there like, for a little pop while. Bands and you know Barry Mumford and Sons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the banjo originally was an African instrument. Um, that was made out of a. Uh, or, or its roots, anyways, are, are in an African instrument where they would uh, take a, a, a gourd, cut it in half, it's hollow, and they would stretch an animal string over it for the resonance. Because, a, a, you know, something like a, a guitar, which, you know, way back has its, its roots in things like lutes or, or, uh, or um, the violin family of instruments, mm-hmm. it uses a wood top for resonance. The, the, the animal uh, hide uh, resonance board is a lot bouncier, for lack of a better word. Like right. it's got more give to it, and it gives the banjo that kind of more punchy sound. The banjo, the way we think of it now, was created by a white dude for minstrel shows, who basically took it and and recreated it using kind of drum technology, right? So it's it's a wood backing with basically what ends up being a snare drum clamped to the front is kind of what's going on with the banjo. So why did they choose to leave that instrument behind? Was that just sort of due to like a lack of popularity at the time? Or was there like any specific reason that it just kind of remained in the South? Part of its flavor. I mean, 
uh, by the time they were moving out of the South, it was associated more with minstrel shows than it was necessarily with African-American culture. Right. Which wasn't necessarily something they wanted to replicate. Fair enough. The tradition moved instead to, at least in Chicago especially, um, using, uh, instead of uh, fiddles and uh, banjos, using uh, double basses and guitars. Hmm. So kind of more more the sort of instrument that you would normally associate with jazz. But, you know, around... You know, it, it, at this point in time, Chicago was very much, as much as one can, Chicago was kind of associated with African-American culture at this point. So a lot of the stuff they were doing musically was taking what was available to them and sort of recreating the stuff that they already, uh, they were already, like the music they were already making, mm-hmm. but using what was a little bit more readily available and what was a little bit less associated with the type of life that they're trying to leave behind. Right. Right. Uh, at the same time in New York, this type of, of playing called stride comes up, stride piano. And stride was a, uh, a type of, of playing that grew out of ragtime. It's called, it's called stride basically because the, the, even, even more so than, than ragtime, the hand was just jumping all over this place so much on the left trying to keep the beat mm-hmm. that it's, it's called stride because of the long movements that your hands made across the keyboard as you're playing back and forth like it, it, it had like a, a very like uh, performative aspect to it so yeah like especially Visually, right? it's it's interesting to watch yeah exactly to, yeah. to see somebody play stride jazz is is almost as interesting as it is to listen to them mm-hmm. and this is the kind of playing like that you would tend to associate with say um silent movies even yes. more than ragtime like so lots of the like the 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 trills like the stuff like that when you think when you think silent movie soundtrack this is the kind of music you're thinking of is is stride jazz mm-hmm. the one thing that i that actually kind of occurred to me when when i was uh, doing some of this research was that when you think about music in like a tavern from like the wild west and like the honky tonk piano and yes stuff, yeah Normally, when I think of that music, I'm actually thinking of ragtime, which is like 40 years too late, which is kind of interesting. But I, ha- I kind of wonder how much of that comes out of out of movies and, and more associating uh, stride and ragtime with uh, with the South over any music that actually would have been played there. I didn't actually yeah. really look into it that much. That's quite likely. But, you know, when you see somebody playing piano in a saloon in a, in a Western, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty much ragtime. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if not straight up stride. Around this time, you start getting, and, and we're talking about sort of the, the early 20s at this point, so ragtime's been kind of dying out for a while. Stride is just kind of getting into, into fashion. One of the things that's start, uh, that starts popping up is very local radio stations. Mm. And you start getting a little bit more blurring of sort of regional flavors, just a tiny bit. At the very least, people are becoming a little bit more aware of what's going on in other places. You also have the widespread cutting and and uh, purchasing of records. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainly the 78 RPM at this point in time, which is, it basically has like three minutes aside. Like it's not a very long record, but it's enough to put a quick song on. And so a lot of people were writing three minute songs. It's like pop music has never ever changed. <laughs> um, they're, they're writing radio hits basically. Yeah. But people could actually hear... Uh, music from different areas without actually going there like so you start getting a little bit more 
of a of a blending of different styles. You it's start like getting slight globalization of music. A little bit. I mean, the United <laughs> States is interesting in that it should probably be like at least three different countries, if not more. Yeah, I can see that. Culturally speaking, like the the, the regions are so different. And when you look at American roots music, sort of the folk folk music, including country, bluegrass, blues, mm-hmm. jazz, like all of these different genres, it becomes really apparent how how culturally distinct yeah. uh, the United States is because, you know, again, the, the, the stuff that's happening in Europe is, is depending on how you think about music and, and, and that's a, that's a completely different thing. How you think about music is a very cultural thing. Yeah. It's, it's almost scary how much you could pretty much take a lot of information about a person and without ever having met them, have a pretty good idea of what music they listen to <laughs> because your, your musical taste is very much a, a function of your, your social standing it's it's enjoying a song is as much a a social performance as it is a personal thing which is kind of a depressing thing to think about (laughs) you want to think that your taste is is extremely independent but and and you know i i don't think that there's i mean i I suppose i can see how that might be true but i think it's not an absolute thing yeah and in in this day and age too it's just there's so much sort of cross mixing and stuff of different styles and genres and it's easier to access different styles and genres than it would have been even say 20 years ago absolutely but the truth of the matter is that if you grew up in brooklyn you're probably not a huge country fan yeah uh, yeah you you know what i mean there's certain there there are certain things about music that are kind of i don't want to say set in stone because that's absolutely not true but you know at this point like you know before the birth of, of nationalized radio where you're from has a huge impact on what you listen to because mm-hmm. that's the only music that's around you. Yeah. You know, if you grew up in Mississippi in the 1880s, you listen to Mississippi blues because that's all anybody was playing. Detroit and Motown. Detroit and Motown. Oh, man. So good. <laughs> um, it's good stuff. No, but absolutely. It's, it's so true. And, and, and it's because if you're, in, if you're in Mississippi in the 1880s, there's no orchestra around. Yeah. And if there is, you can't afford to go to it. Nope. <laughs> and even if you could, you don't want to because that's associ- that's that's associated with, you know, basically fancy white people. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily something that you're interested in when you're listening to like original grassroots blues and it actually means something to you personally and culturally. You know, that stuff sounds kind of stilted to you, maybe. Mm-hmm. It's and not likewise, something you instinctively relate to exactly and and likewise there's a huge backlash against roots music by uh more intellectually elite people as being uh uncivilized and and kind of undisciplined and raw and Mm -hmm. um the lack of structure is maybe distressing it absolutely is and i mean we're gonna get to some stuff in the second half that honestly i I find incredibly challenging to listen to Mm -hmm. and that's something that jazz has been doing the entire time is pushing boundaries on what yeah. makes people comfortable and, and, and what people enjoy in music because it's not an easy art form. No. It's not a simple art form. Not at all. But it can be a very rewarding art form. And that's something that it's always tried to push. Sometimes consciously, sometimes not. But often what you're seeing there isn't just a, an intellectual issue, but a, a cultural one. It's a it's a matter of this not being and you know I, I it it pains me to say it but it, it's an issue of this not being white music mm-hmm. and that you know there was a certain time where that really really meant something yeah. it meant a, a very serious thing and um, 
and it, and it really had an impact on who listened to jazz and how much jazz spread across the country, among other, you know, roots, arts, art forms. Mm-hmm. But as I said, we get to the 20s and things start kind of crossing over a little bit. People start being exposed to more and more of these types of roots music that, that were in little pockets and bringing inspirations from here and there. And finally, in 1923, a guy named James P. Johnson comes along and he wrote a little song. And I think we're going to throw it on uh, right now for a couple seconds. So yeah, 1923 by James P. Johnston. That was uh, that was the Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you heard of it. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. The Charleston, while probably not the first thing that you think of in terms of the the quintessential jazz song, is is very much like the like without the Charleston, you don't get modern jazz. It's impossible. There's a lot of times when I was going through this, especially like in chronological order where I kind of went, oh, yeah, yeah, no, this sounds like jazz now. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing would come along, and it's like, no. Oh, no, this one. <laughs> no, this is jazz. This right here is jazz. And and I think I think one of the things about the Charleston that that didn't make me react quite as strongly that way is that it's kind of its own thing. It's such a it's such a cultural phenomenon that mm-hmm. it, you know, you don't go, oh, that's a jazz song. You go, oh, that's the Charleston. Yeah. Like, it is it is its, its own, own distinct thing. thing. But let's talk about what's going on in there. So you have the drums, which are playing a, a swing beat, which is exactly the beat that you would have in a stride piano piece, right? That's what the left hand would be doing mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a stride piano. You've also got a lot of really classic New Orleans instruments. So yeah. lots of horns. You've got the, uh, the clarinet going, same sort of like really fast. Very impressive clarinet playing. Yeah, very impressive. Like really fast sections, like what the uh, uh, like what you saw with the the Louis Armstrong piece. You're also hearing kind of the remnants of that call and answer pattern, which is that there is the basic motif of the Charleston, and then it's obviously well laid out. Like this isn't this isn't just completely ad hoc improvisation. It's not. Mm. Everyone knows what they're doing, but they also each take their own turn, improvising over the theme of the Charleston. Yeah, it's like, like the bones of the piece are there and then they each like flesh it out. Absolutely. Like the Charleston itself is like 15 seconds long maybe. Mm-hmm. But it keeps, you know, they keep doing variations on it and variations on it and variations on it. And I mean, I, I didn't play much of it there, but like you should really just go and listen to the whole thing. There's, you know, the you can hear the banjo in there that's being played. Not really the way you might think of banjo being played. Mm-hmm. Jazz banjo is an interesting thing. Like it's really fast and it's not it's not exactly like bluegrass finger-picking banjo it's not mm-hmm. um it's played very percussively and very quickly and very high yeah the, the whole song is, is great there's a reason that this is you know it's it's in the the library of congress is like a, a meaningful piece of art from american history right like mm-hmm. for, for good reason absolutely it's a great song yeah and the the, the charleston was important in that it began a complete cultural phenomenon across the United States. Mm-hmm. So the Charleston wasn't just a song 
there was also the dance that goes along with it, which again, go check out, like just type Charleston dance into YouTube. <laughs> there are so many people, people still dance to Charleston all of the time. It's very, very popular. Mm-hmm. It kind of involves mainly like kicking your heels up behind you and sort of out to the side in sort mm-hmm. of this weird way, as well as a lot of like bowing the knees out to one side and then back in, uh, stuff like that, which a lot of people point to some of the fashion of the day as being like yeah. allowing ladies to actually dance this because the hemlines mm-hmm. came way up in the 20s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have a floor length skirt, it's going to be real tough to dance Charleston. But this song took the United States by storm. <laughs> Everyone loved it so much. And I like the idea that there was like a unifying song like that. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And I mean, you think about you think about music these days and like, you know, every once in a while there's still like some dance craze style song, but oh, that Nene song, man, it's driving me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, somebody's going to listen to this in like three months and be like, what's he even talking about? Because it's going to be gone by then. I know. Anyways. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, everyone learned the steps. Uh, it, it became this big thing. There were there were dance halls that were that were playing songs like this that didn't really quite have a name at this point. I mean, it's still it's still a type of jazz. They're they're calling this jazz, mm-hmm. and and it is called jazz at this point. By the way, that name came up around 1912 or so that they started calling okay. things jazz. Interesting. Um, originally, not only uh, referring to music specifically, but kind of anything of sort of like a, an improvisational nature but very quickly game, uh, became narrowed down to just the music. One of the things that kind of comes out of fame on this level is that everybody sort of wants a piece. Mm-hmm. When something is a, a cultural phenomenon of, you know, that kind of belongs to one marginalized group, if it's something that everyone really likes, you get something called appropriation, <laughs> which means that everyone <laughs> wants to take it and make it their own. <laughs> There's a lot more to that issue, but we're not going to get all the way into that. Oh my. Oh what my. a can of worms. Yep. Pandora's box. Yeah. We're going to stay away from cultural appropriation <laughs> as much as possible, even though it is a, a major part of the jazz story. But mm-hmm. the, the point is that, you know, it's it's not always the best thing for, well, it's, it's rarely the best thing for the group that's having um, their very specific cultural icon taken and sort of taken over by everybody else in in that they're sort of losing a little bit of what's uh, set them apart uh, all along. That absolutely happened with the Charleston. It became really big. If you listen to the recording, it's very like regimented, right? Like you can tell that this was written down somewhere. Mm -hmm. And the people that are playing that, I'm not sure how much improvisation is going on there, really. It sounds to me a lot more like they have written down how somebody improvised at some point and learned how to play that improv sounding section the exact same way yeah every single time the charleston and its its popularity and the and the the style that it kind of spawned in the early 20s would lead to uh, a few different things which collectively would become known as the jazz age now Uh, I think that's probably a good place to stop because jazz is really about to come into its own. And so, yeah, we'll save all the good stuff for next time. Sounds good.
By the 1920s, jazz had matured to the point where it was a much bigger force than a simple regional folk style, but it was still not completely acceptable to American society as a whole without some modifications to make it feel just a little bit safer. Next time on HI101, we'll look at this process of making it safer and more commercial, and the strong reactions of purists against what had happened to their art form. That episode will be up on October 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.